And if you would please take your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter number 6. We come tonight to the conquest of the great walled city of Jericho. And uh, we find the children of Israel receiving instruction from God as to how they're going to conquer the city. Now, there's going to be some unique requirements that they're going to have to abide by, but just like they experienced victory in their conquest, we experience victory in the very same way. You understand that victory in the Christian life is experienced solely through faith in God and obedience to His Word. If you want to do those two things, uh, you will be a successful Christian. Faith in God and obedience to His Word. Now, sometimes His Word asks a lot of us, meaning it doesn't always make sense what is asked of us. But I guess that's about the same thing as asking a whole bunch of people to lift up their voices and shout so that the walls may fall down. And in a sense, it's a very ridiculous battle strategy, but we understand that all that is required for victory in the Christian life is faith in God and obedience to His Word. Whatever it asks of us, Submission to His Word will always result in victory. And so we come to Joshua chapter number 6. Now we'll read just, uh, kind of highlight the story as I assume most people here tonight are familiar with what's taking place. But God tells Joshua here in this passage, and we'll read a little bit about what the Lord commands him. Verse number 16 of Joshua chapter number 6. And it came to pass... At the seventh time, when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. Verse 17, And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people, when the priest blew the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sounds of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. Now skip down to verse number, or chapter number 7 in verse number 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Now what does that mean? It means the accursed thing which the children of Israel were forbidden, it really isn't an individual or a singular thing, it's many things. It's anything within the city because it was all to be set apart for God. It was all consecrated to Him. It was His. Now they're going to go on many more conquests and they're going to defeat many more cities. There's a lot of people in the promised land and they're going to have to uh, uh, remove them all. God's going to give them more victories. But this first city, the first fruits of their victories were to be set aside for God. And so in taking of the accursed thing, someone, somebody took the things that did not pertain to them. For Achan... 
the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now skip down to verse number 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Now a little bit's happened from chapter uh, or verse number 1 to cha- verse number 10. Uh, they've gone to battle with a small city, not far from Jericho, by the name of Ai. Now, Ai was by no means renowned for its military strength or its defense city. Ai was an easy win. The problem is they didn't pray and they didn't prepare and they did not obey God in Jericho. And so they experienced utter defeat in Ai. Joshua now comes to the Lord. What do we do wrong? Why, why, Why has everything gone so badly? The Lord says, get up from off your face. Israel hath sinned, verse 11, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken the accursed thing and have also stolen and disassembled also. And they have put it even amongst their own stuff. Boy, it's a bad thing when the stuff that belongs to God becomes part of our stuff. Verse 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Now skip down to verse number 16. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites by man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel. And make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And thus and thus have I done. There is a major difference between being fully committed and almost fully committed. Tonight when you get home, I want you to go to your wife, and I want you to look at her and say, Honey, I almost love you. See if there's not somewhat of a significant difference between I love you and I almost love you. See, our God is a God that works in absolutes. And what I mean by that is all that God does, He does in completion. A few examples of that is God's Word is completed. It's perfect. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It doesn't need correction. It doesn't need revision. It doesn't need a new translation. We have more translations than we ever needed in the first place. It doesn't need new. It just needs this. It's complete. God's Word is complete. So it's absolute. God's finished work on Calvary, the work of Jesus, is done. That's why on the cross He cried... It is finished because it is done. Nothing else needs to be added to it. No more needs to be done. The death has been di- has been paid. The debt has been paid. His death gives us life. It's done. It's complete. So all the toil and all the work and all the sacrificial systems are obsolete now because, as we mentioned this morning, Jesus is a better high priest and Jesus is a better atonement for sin. It's complete. See, God works in absolutes. 
And even the promises that we experience in the Christian life are absolute. Aren't you thankful that the Bible says who, that God will have all men to be saved? But there's a big difference between all men and almost all men. I'm thankful that verse reads all men and not almost all men. I'm thankful that I know that Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord and to them that are called according to His purpose. I'm thankful that when I go through the daily doldrums of my life and I face adversity and obstacles in my Christian life, I'm thankful that I have the promise of Romans 8.28 that though I may not understand it and though it may not be easy, I know God is working all things for my good and for His glory. I have that promise. But if you add the word almost, it changes the verse entirely. Because then as you face the obstacles of life, you may be thinking to yourself, well, is this one of those things that God doesn't have in control? See, almost matters. When I see in Aiken's life, and I see what in a lot of Christians' life, is an almost type of attitude towards many aspects of the Christian life. Like I'm almost committed. Like I'll almost give all that I have to the Lord. I'll almost cooperate with everyone around me. I'll almost... Do it. And so tonight, I want to take a look at this almost Christianity. And it is this type of Christianity, which by the way, I believe the Bible describes when it says that there are people that have a form of godliness, but those very people deny the power thereof. Meaning they they look Christian, and they identify with certain biblical characteristics, but, but in their... attempt, and in their facade, there's something missing. And in that sense, it's almost Christianity. I want to talk to you tonight about four vivid examples of almost Christianity lived out in Aiken's life. I want you to see, first of all, an uncertain relationship. Verse number 1 of chapter number 7 tells us that there was one man that took of the accursed thing in Israel. It was that it was Achan, the son of Carmi. He took of it. Now, here's the strange thing about Achan is, Achan has recently experienced many miracles that God has performed amongst the people of Israel. Achan was no doubt a man who tasted of manna. Achan was a man who no doubt drank from the, rock that, uh, from the water that sprung from the rock. Achan was a man who fought in the very battle where Moses stood up on the mountainside with Aaron under one arm and her under the other arm, holding his hands up because when his hands were raised to the sky, Israel prospered. But the very moment that Moses' hands got weak and tired, guess what? Achan was on the battlefield swinging swords and uh, thrusting spears experiencing that when His hands are up, Almighty God is doing a miracle. But when His hands fall, God is not with us. And so Achan experienced the miracle-working power of God. Achan saw the walls of Jericho fall down. He saw when the people shouted and the, the horns blew, he saw God do a miracle. So in that sense, Achan tasted of the goodness of God. But his actions have to call into question whether or not he truly knew God at all. You say, that's unfair to judge people at their worst moment. I'm not judging people at their worst moment. I'm just telling you we have one interaction with Achan, and it is this. A moment where everybody else in Israel is doing what God wants them to do, and Achan's like, no, I think I'm just going to do my own thing. 
We call into question His very love and obedience to God when He won't fear Him and honor His commandments. Achan was a man who sought his own way instead of God. And it's in this characteristic of him that I wonder if maybe Achan was not like King Agrippa, who when Paul had witnessed to him, King Agrippa said, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I, I know the story of God, and I know how God has moved through His people, and I know, I, I know He has miracle-working power. And now, I understand the aspects of the gospel that can save me, but Paul, for whatever reason, in this moment in time, I'm not ready, so almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I wonder if Achan was not so, so uniquely close to these miracles, and yet rejected salvation in his own life. I do not know, and I can't tell you for sure whether or not he did. I can't tell you whether or not any person has accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, with a few exceptions within the Word of God. I would say that probably the thief on the cross that Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he probably was saved. But but I am not the judge of any man's salvation. But I will tell you this, I do believe that we have raised a generation of people who think of salvation as a momentary experience. And I touched on this this morning. In fact, it was much of the uh, idea of the last point. But salvation isn't just a time when you bowed your head and prayed a sinner's prayer. That's not salvation. Now, salvation, it, 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 it has within it all the aspects I mentioned this morning. The moment of justification, the process of sanctification, and the eventual glorification. Your salvation is to be lived out every single day of your life. It it becomes not only what you do, it becomes who you are. And I am alarmed at the amount of Christians who genuinely struggle to know if they're saved. And when you have conversations with these Christians, what you'll often find is they are always pointing back to a particular time. Uh, They'll say, you know, I got saved when I was in Sunday school class. I went back and brother so-and-so, he took me through the sinner's prayer. And that day I placed my faith in Jesus. Okay, that would be the, the starting point of your faith. But tell me what you did yesterday to work out your faith. A lot of these people abandon the, the, the mantle of their faith after day one. And so, when they get 365 days removed, or even more than that, they sit there and they say, I just wonder if I'm saved. Brethren, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It is a daily process. Now, I'll touch on this in just a little bit. I am by no means teaching a works-based salvation. I am by no means teaching that you have to produce some works to earn your way to heaven. What I am saying is the very reality that God is working in my life assures me that I am His child. The very reality that when I sin, 
His presence convicts me of that sin. The very reality that I want to know Him, that I want to pray to Him, that I want to read His Word, the very reality that He uh, assures me through worship songs and through, through praise music that, that speaks to my soul. And when I'm reading His Word, it comes alive and it springs off the page as if not speaking of Achan, but as if speaking of my own life. The very reality that when I read of Jesus' trials and sufferings, I would in my own mind, like Paul, say, I want to be... Uh, I want to live the life that Jesus lived. And if that means suffer, I want to suffer for Jesus' sake. Those thoughts and those, uh, uh, those attitudes do not exist in me naturally. I'm not going to have those things in my flesh. And so as I become like Christ, and as I commit my life to living like Christ... That in and of itself is the greatest tangible evidence that I am a child of God. You say, preacher, I just don't know if I'm saved. Tell me what you did today to live for God. Did you wake up this morning have any desire to talk to Him? Did you wake up this morning with any desire that He would talk to you? Did you this morning think that when you could take control of the reins of your life, but you would prefer that a sovereign and almighty and omnipotent God would take the reins of your life with His almighty hands that knows everything and has been in tomorrow. When you consider the option between you calling the shots or a good God that loves you and gave the very most valuable thing that He had for you, why in the world would any Christian say, yeah, I think I want to walk in my way today. There's a way that seemeth right unto the man, but in their own are the ways of destruction. So we surrender the reins to the Lord. My point is this. Achan was a man who was so near to Christianity and so near to salvation, but I wonder if his life does not give us more evidence to the contrary that he wasn't saved. He was almost Christian, but maybe not a real Christian. Within the church today, I see a lot of people who struggle not only with the assurance of their salvation, but really just to live out their salvation in a practical sense. There's a disconnect between what they know to do right and then actually putting it into action. My friend, you have the presence of Almighty God living inside of you. Now when you get saved, the Holy Spirit of God takes residence in your heart. In fact, the Bible calls him the earnest of our inheritance. What that means is, it's like down payment. You put down earnest money on a house or on a car. That is the deposit of God in your spirit to assure you that you are one of his children. And in a very real sense, he takes a little bit of heaven and puts in your soul. And says there's a whole lot more of this where that came from. You have the deposit of God in your life. The problem is, I don't understand how people that claim to be children of God could not discern the Holy Spirit's presence in their life. We are talking about the same one who raised Jesus from the dead. We're talking about the same power that parted the Red Sea. We're talking about literally power that calms storms and raises people from the dead. We're talking about that kind of power. And then we act as if He's just this very silent voice in our heart that we can't discern. If that's the way you perceive the Holy Spirit, the chances are, more often than not, when He talks to you, when He tries to lead you, you tell Him to stop and go back where He came from. 
The Holy Spirit's willing to talk to you. He abides in your life. Not only that, but our fruits should bear witness that we are a child of God. Remember uh, this morning I talked about the things that accompany salvation? There's just some things that as you live out your salvation, there will be an accompaniment of them. These are the fruits of the Spirit. You know, this may surprise you and you may consider yourself a good person, but naturally in your flesh you will not produce... uh, uh, You will not produce kindness, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance, love. You won't produce those things because those are things that God produces in the life of His children. We are children of wrath. We're we're people trying to seek the pleasures of our flesh and the lusts of our flesh without God. And when we, even as Christians, operate in the fleshly aspects of life, we will not please God. But as a child of God, we live out our faith... And that faith produces in us the fruits of the Spirit. So our fruits bear witness that we are a child of God. So we have the Spirit of God in our life. We have the fruits of Almighty God. And then more than that, we we have new passions and new appetites. This is the, the, the truth. It's that when you get saved, something changes Something transformative changes. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That doesn't mean that you won't struggle with certain appetites and certain things that maybe had an appeal to you in the past. What it does mean is that God, for whatever you uh, uh, imbibed in, whatever you took advantage of, whatever you did before you were saved, God offers a more beneficial spiritual substitute. Be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You want to act like you're not under control, <laughs> you know, like alcohol might produce some uh, activities and actions that do not look like you're controlling yourself? Okay, here's God's offer. Just submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and you'll act in ways you never thought possible. God offers substitutes and we have these new passions. The problem is, we have raised a generation of Christians that ignore hundreds of passages of Scripture that describe what a Christian looks like and what a Christian lives like and the things that they'll desire and the things that they'll hope for. We've ignored thousands of passages like that all because we remember the place and the time we got saved. And you are denying the scriptures of Almighty God under the experiential reality that, God prayed a sinner's prayer. When your experience is weighed against God's word, I'm sorry, your experience will never measure up. And so I think that like Achan in churches today, we have a lot of people that are not Christian, they're almost Christian. They, they have this uncertain relationship. Their fruits don't identify them with God. They know nothing of what it is to be led of the Holy Spirit. And their appetites look the exact same before salvation as they do after salvation. And my friend, this would be uh, totally contrary to the doctrine of sanctification. So there's an uncertain relationship. The guy is almost Christian. We see, secondly, there's an undermined respect. Verse number 1 informs us again that Achan was the one that took the accursed thing. But I want you to consider this. 
Achan was the only one. If you did some research, you might find for yourself that when the children of Israel passed over into Jericho in Joshua chapter 4, they were led by 40,000 men armed for war. So the very minimum number we're talking about here is 40,000. If you fast forward several uh, a, a while back, Moses had taken a census during his time. And during that census, there were over 600,000 fighting men over the age of 20 prepared for war at any time. Now, even if we didn't include the women and the children as if they were hopping the you know, rubble of the walls of Jericho to go in and to, to, to perform military activity, even if we omit them, 600,000 men leapt over the rubble walls to defeat Jericho. 600,000. You know how many did what God told them not to do? One. Have you ever considered how remarkable that is? If we took a poll tonight, I don't think there would be one topic that 99% of us agreed on. One. This one guy was the only one that rebelled. This one guy was the only one that didn't surrender and fully commit to what God had asked him to do. And this may surprise you, but you know what Achan's name means? It literally interprets to and translates to troublemaker. Troublemaker. When his mama looked at him on the day he was born, you know what she said? That's a troublemaker if I've ever seen one. And she was spot on the money. You know what, as I studied for this sermon, you know what I realized? We all have a little bit of Achan in us. We all have a little troublemaker in us. Sometimes that troublemaker is revealed when we're going to do ministry here at the church. And, uh, you know, we might not get the role that we want in the vacation Bible school. Or we may not get the... uh, 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 commendation and the the praise that we thought we deserved because of our special that we sang. Maybe we don't like the fact that Brother Andrew mentions only Miss Betty and I was smiling too. And all these things, we have to push down that little Achan that's inside of all of us. What I find is this Achan oftentimes results in division amongst the brethren. You know how many cells it takes in your body? To begin the stages of cancer? Just one. One rebellious cell. Achan was that cell. He was the cancer. He was the rebellious one. And by the way, I want you to understand, there is no such thing as rebellion. There is no such thing as sin that is in a vacuum. This sin and this rebellion is going to affect uh, affect others. It's going to have detrimental impact, not only on Achan and his family, but also on the 36 men that go and fight an AI and lose their life. Almost everyone was on board except one troublemaker. This year as our church has chosen the theme perfectly joined together, 
We've re-emphasized this and preached message after message on this, occasionally mentioning it from the pulpit. And I've seen God do, do remarkable works in the area of uniting our body together, coming together and, and just loving each other and serving each other. And it's so great to see that when I go visit a church member that's sick or going through surgeries or whatever, it's so great to see church members leaving the house that have already been there to serve and meet the needs. That's things that ministry and administration can't take care of. That's just people loving people and wanting to show God's love through acts of service to them. But I would tell you, we must always be on the lookout that that little aching inside of all of us doesn't rise up and have a detrimental impact on the unity that God has developed amongst us. Think about it. 99.99 of everybody else was on board and yet one guy failed. And you know what happened because of that? This one guy's actions affected the rest of everybody else. Sin always does. Rebellion always does. I suppose we could go ask King David after numbering the people. After taking a census against the will of the Lord. I suppose we could ask him as that death angel now hovers over the city of Jerusalem and he has already taken several thousand men's lives. And I wonder if you could ask King David, Hey David, do you think your sin affects anyone else? David then, in that moment in time, is so moved and so heartbroken about all that's gone on. And, and David looks at uh, the Lord and he says, Lo, I have sinned and have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? The sheep didn't do anything, I did it. Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And we find that sin doesn't only affect the container, it spills out over and affects everyone else. Isaiah, when seeing the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Notice what else he says. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The Corinthian church is reprimanded for allowing heinous sin to be present in their congregation. Such acts that were not even named amongst the Gentiles, uh, that a a, a son would take his father's uh, wife. He married his stepmother. Things that should not be done and things that should not be performed. And the Bible not only condemns the men and the, the, the mother... The Bible condemns the church and the congregation. Why? Because they had been complacent. They were okay with it. They'd all turned a blind eye to it. And that's what sin does. It numbs. We become okay with it. But sin always affects others. And sin must be harshly dealt with. And so there's an undermined respect. God said to do such and such. And Achan being the one acted out. And I wonder if maybe tonight... We don't have Achans within all of us waiting to be the rebellious one, waiting to take our own path instead of that which the Lord would have us to do. I want you to see thirdly this evening an uncovered rebellion. Verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. Behold, they are hid in the earth, in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. What a, what a humorous picture. Achan gets these items, and as he's besieging the city, as he's uh, doing what the Lord had commanded him to do, he sees these things, takes them back to his tent. I suppose he has a bit of a rug there in the middle of his tent, has to move one of his kids over that's probably asleep, 
He moves him over, pulls the rug back, digs a hole right in the center of his tent, puts these items in the hole. You know what's sad about this? He puts them in the hole. You know what good they were to him in the hole? None. He couldn't wear the garment. He couldn't spend the money. He was so ashamed of what he had done, he just had to hide it. Let me ask you theologians a question this evening. How deep of a hole would you have to dig to hide something from God? Achan digged a hole. He thought it would hide his sin. And in this sense, he almost got away with it. Until he didn't. Until sin reared its destructive power amongst the people, God said, uh, hey Joshua, why are you crying to me? You've got sin in the camp. Why are you on your face begging me uh, that I should fix a problem? You took of the accursed thing. Joshua didn't know there was a hole in somebody's tent, but there was. We recognize the foolishness of Achan's strategy to hide this from the Lord. As if burying it in his tent was actually effective. We recognize the foolishness in his life, but I wonder if we recognize it in our own. I wonder if we don't have maybe some hidden areas in our life that have not been fully removed, fully cleared out for the Lord's glory. We know that the Lord's not pleased with these things. We know that it doesn't make Him happy. We know that it's detrimental to us. But after all, it's what we enjoy. And after all, it's what we covet. And it's what we want. And so our hole is filled with the things that we cling on to. And we hide them from the preacher. And we hide them from our wife. And we hide them from the children. But at the end of the day, you're not hiding it from God. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. And what I can only assume is one of the most most ironic verses in all the Bible. You are not making a fool of God. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the picture has to be abundantly clear to us tonight. As literally, Achan sowed his items. Now you sow items, you put them in the earth. Achan literally sowed the items that he coveted, the sins that he had hidden from the Lord, from everybody else, but his sin would ultimately be uncovered. Christian, you may have gotten away with it this far, but you will not get away with it forever. The only type of places in the life of a Christian that glorify God are the ones that are emptied so that He can fill. You understand that? God is not going to remove anything from your life that He will not replace and make better. But when we fill the holes of our life with all sorts of things that this world has to offer, it's too cramped for God to replace it. What a sad thing that Achan went under this idea, under this strategy that, yeah, I think I can get away with it. He didn't. And his sin was uncovered as will our, all of ours be. Now I want you to see fourthly this evening, an unachieved repentance. Now verse 20 speaks, as they've gone through this laborious process, they've brought the entire tribe of Judah out. Just in Moses' census alone, there were 75,000 fighting men in the tribe of Judah. I want you to imagine how large of an area 75,000 men would take up. 
all representing different households, all representing different families. And this is just the men coming here. And then it goes from the tribe of Judah to the family, the Zarhites, then to the house, the house of Zabdi, and then it goes to Achan. And this process would have taken so long as they're clearing out one uh, 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 process of this, then it moves to the next process, each time weaning the numbers down so that they finally reveal the sinner, the one that is taken of the accursed thing. I have to be uh, fully transparent here. I believe it was two years ago at youth camp, as Brother uh, Taylor Gillespie preached on a similar message in this passage. I had never considered this, but he raised the point, why did God go through all that process? Could it be that during that process, God was waiting on Achan to step forward and say, it was me. It's my fault. We we, We can just cut out all the other stuff. We don't need to go any farther. We don't need to eliminate anybody else. It was me. I can go to the place in my tent. I can uncover the hole. I can take the items out. I can show you it was me. And I've sinned and I've trespassed against the Lord. It was me. Why didn't he do that? I would submit to you tonight because he never truly was repentant. Repentance is not just simply feeling bad about getting caught. The other day I watched a video of a police officer that was caught, uh, an off-duty police officer that was caught speeding, doing 125 miles an hour on his way to Las Vegas. He said it was an emergency though, so that made a lot of sense. The police officer that pulled him over, uh, the guy goes, Sir, I'm an off-duty cop. He goes, Brother, at 125, being an off-duty cop ain't going to help you. He said, oh man, you're going to ruin my career. He said, look, I ain't the one that made the decision to go 125 miles an hour. What happened? That guy was just sorry he got caught. He wasn't sorry for what he had done. The Bible teaches that godly sorrow brings repentance. There will be an element of sorrow to all genuine repentance, but the difference in godly repentance is that it is not just an admission of sin and guilt. It is an acknowledgement that your sin has devastating results and absolutely grieves God's heart. It's not simply saying, I messed up again, but repentance, by definition, is actually coming to God and saying, God, Not only have I sinned, but I recognize my sin as being the way you see it in my life. My sin destroys. My sin kills. My sin spills over onto others. And so, Lord, I come to you recognizing it, not in my own eyes how bad it is, but in your eyes, according to your word and according to what you have prescribed for me, I recognize it is evil and utterly wicked. Lord, I repent of that sin. It's not just simply feeling bad for it. It's an acknowledgement of the way God sees that sin playing out in your life. Did you know that all sin, at its very core, all of it, the little white lie you tell and the murder that you commit in your heart when you hate your neighbor, all sin ultimately is rebellion against God. It's what it is. And we understand that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So... This rebellion grieves God, but it also destroys you. 
And it grieves what God can do in your life. God can't fill you with His strength and power if you're filled with sin and rebellion. And so God is not able to use you in the way that He wants to. When you truly repent, you'll come to God and you'll say, Lord, I recognize sin not only as being bad, not only as being frowned upon within the church, but I recognize sin for what it is against you. Rebellion. Do you ever wonder why David prayed in Psalm 51? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Was that entirely true? No, not at all. He had literally murdered a man. He had, he had uh, taken a wife that was not his own. David committed abominable things, but David understood that the height of his sin was not against man so much as it was against God. And his rebellion was acknowledged when he said, Lord, it's against you. It's not that I've only hurt Bathsheba. It's not only that I've killed Uriah. My sin was rebellion against you. No wonder he said, Thou desirest truth, sincerity in the inward parts. You know where the inward parts are? The holes of our life. All the way to the core, all the way to the bottom. You desire truth. David was a man that was really good at repentance. In fact, if you ask my opinion, and it is just that, just my opinion, you know the key distinguishing factor between King Saul and King David? One was humble to repent, and the other one was prideful and hardened his heart. We must be a repentant people. You know, strangely enough, I hear a lot of Christians talk about wanting revival. That's what we all want. We all want personal revival. We all want corporate revival. But I want to tell you very clearly, revival must be preceded by repentance. There is no revival to be had unless repentance is first completed. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves... And turn from their wicked ways. What is that? That is humility and repentance. Then will I hear their prayers. Then will I heal their land. Revival follows repentance. We have so many revivals today. We have so many revival sermons. But reality is, we need more repentance messages. Because we're not a people good at repenting at all. We must understand that this was an unachieved repentance. We follow the life of a man, the mistake of a man who probably was not genuinely saved. He said, yep, almost a Christian. We come to an undermined respect where almost everyone is on board except one guy. There's an uncovered rebellion where he says, I almost got away with it. And an unachieved repentance where he says, I almost got right with the Lord the way I, wanted, I should have. This is a sad story. Almost can be a bad word. Almost did it in time. I almost avoided the accident. But sometimes almost speaks not only of problems, it speaks of potential. For instance, when my wife and I are getting ready on Sunday morning, she gives me uh, as much privacy as can be had within our home. Uh, There's three children. Most of them are running around naked almost all the time. Uh, usually five minutes before we hop in the car. They're running around naked half the time. Bubba's going around swinging his shirt. Amy's got Bailey under her arm. Caitlin's nose is bleeding. I mean, it's usually a great morning on Sunday mornings. 
And there I am over in my seat, studying my outlines, looking over my Sunday school book, trying to get my thoughts together. I'm praying. Generally, what I'm doing is I'm praying for Amy not to kill the children. But Sunday mornings can be tough, and they're rather hectic for us. But eventually, there comes a point where I'll look at Amy, and I'll say, Babe, are you almost ready? And sometimes I think that aggravates her a little bit. Like, what have you been doing all morning, Mr. Preacher Man? You know, I think that's probably what she's thinking a lot of the times. But man, when she says, I'm almost ready, you know what that means? She says, yep, we start loading up to get in the car. We start getting ready to head to church. All the frustration, all the craziness, all the chaos is left in the rearview mirror, and I'm almost ready to get to the place that we're all trying to get to. Almost can be a bad term when it's used of almost surrendered. Almost a Christian. But it can be a term of potential, especially when you come to an invitation. Because I believe within the church there is a heart cry deep within many of us that's tired of the Christianity that we've possessed for so long. We know that there has to be more. I mean, it's not just that, you know, we're Christian because we've been that way since we were little, but there has to be more. There has to be more to studying God's Word and knowing it and seeing it come to life and and seeing it really carry weight in moving times of life and difficult times of life. There has to be more. I think within a lot of churches today, there's people that realize that they need to go the extra step. They need to surrender this almost committed lifestyle. They need to clean out the holes of their life and say, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow you entirely, completely. I wonder if Peter had looked at Jesus and said, I know you've asked me to leave my nets, but can I just carry this net with me? There's no such thing as a disciple that's almost following the Master. You've either left all behind to follow Him, or you haven't followed Him at all. I think within the church, our church and other churches, there's a heart cry to get to this place where we are 100% all in for God. But I think invitation comes, and invitation goes, and day by day we know what we need to do, all the while we say, almost. I almost went down to the altar tonight to get right with the Lord. I almost fixed the things that I know that are lacking. I've almost surrendered all those things that I've carried from the time in my life where I wasn't at all committed to God. And I've almost done it. But I wonder if maybe we couldn't turn those problematic almosts to almosts of potential. So that tomorrow morning when we arise from our bed, the term is no longer almost, but it becomes already. Already took care of it. I already fixed it. I already cleaned out the hole. I've already laid all those things down. I came to an old-fashioned altar. And by the way, historically speaking, do you know how many godly men and women have knelt at an old-fashioned altar and their lives have been changed? This is not just a place where steps are. And this is not just a place that we vacuum each week. This is a place where tears have been cried and lives have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus. This is a wonderful place. And yet, each week... It's so strange as we have times of invitation. It's almost like people say, you know what, almost that was a good enough sermon to get me out of my seat. Almost I'm humble enough today to go down and kind of embarrass myself before everybody else. 
I remember talking to a widow in our church a long time ago. An older lady, her body was breaking down. I just went to visit her and she mentioned to me how she would love to go to an altar. But her body just simply wouldn't allow it. So many of us able-bodied people sit in the pew, never going to an altar. Allah saying, almost. And what I don't understand is, I do think many of us have this heart cry, this desire to go the extra step, to experience Christ on a, a deeper level than we ever have before. And it almost seems like almost has become our knee-jerk response. Look, almost never accomplished anything for God. Alreadys do. I already surrendered. I already cleaned out the hole. I already gave my life to Christ. There's no looking back. No turning back. No turning back.